the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hey guys, we're back. Hi. Hi, Matt. How you doing? How's I'm life? I'm good. I'm excited. This is our first episode this year for Neff Madness. We're back. Right. We're going to be talking about potassium tonight uh, and potassium binders. Uh, does a Is a low potassium diet necessary for patients with CKD? Our, we have three wonderful guests who we'll tell you about in a second here. Uh, of course, yeah. I'm with uh, Stuart, who you're already hearing, and the wonderful Dr. Paul Williams, who's going to tell you a little bit about what we do on this show. Sure, Matt. I We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm excited to be a part of Neff Mattis yet again. Um, it's The thing I like about it is being intimately involved in it and yet still invariably washing out right in the first round, like just failing <laughs> aggressively really, really yeah. quickly. So it's nice to have this kind of insider baseball and still not benefit me in any way that's kind of meaningful. <laughs> and if you happen to have the largest crew of people to wash up with, you, you can still win. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, true. So everyone, please sign up for the Curbsiders. So on this episode, uh, which is based on the review written by Dr. Ryan Sohane, she is a nephrology fellow at the University of Michigan. Uh, We, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the potassium binders, specifically the newer potassium binders. We're going to talk about the evidence for a renal diet and is a low potassium diet necessary for patients with CKD. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about exercise in patients with CKD, particularly patients on dialysis. Um, So, Paul, would you tell them about our two experts that are going to help us through this? We have an embarrassment of riches. We have two experts joining us tonight. So we have Dr. Deborah Clegg, who has her PhD in nutrition and is the Associate Dean for Research at Drexel University. And then, of course, we are joined by the great Dr. Joel Topp, the co-creator of Neff Madness, Chief of Nephrology at Kashuk Memorial Hospital, and known by the sobriquet, sobriquet, I don't know how it's pronounced, uh, <laughs> Kidney Boy on Twitter. So you're all familiar with Dr. Top. Dr. Clegg is in a delightful edition, and I'm excited to be schooled about potassium and kidney disease. All right. So we have a big crew recording tonight. Uh, Ryan, we're going to start with you. Can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and include a hobby or interest outside medicine? Uh, I am a 32-year-old female and mother of two, and I enjoy running very slowly in chocolate. Who doesn't? Uh, running slowly or chocolate? I think both. Running slowly and chocolate. It's a good thing. It's good. It's all good for you. Debbie, how about yourself? I'm a uh, 58-year-old female who has enjoyed never having children, and uh, I'm passionate <laughs> about food and exercise. Tell And you got to... you. We heard you're a climber, so can you expand on that a little bit? Brag about yourself. Yeah, no, I've climbed a bunch of different mountains. I've actually climbed uh, three of the seven summits, Kilimanjaro and a couple of, one in Australia, and I'm blanking on the other one, uh, one in South America. And uh, I, I absolutely love being outside and enjoying how beautiful these mountains are. They're very challenging, and I love the rush that I get on top of that mountain. Wow. Will we be hearing about you climbing all of these seven summits at some point? Is that a goal? It is definitely something that I'm considering doing, yes. Okay. And we're talking like ropes and and uh, all that stuff? Like, 
You're not oh, you're not so, a free soloist, are you? You're, I mean, like I, I just remember. That, so it, it was actually Mont Blanc, and there were ropes on Mont Blanc, and it, it lots of crevasses. Amazing, uh, really, really technical, and it was uh, a phenomenal. When I finished it, a little scary during the actual experience. Well, I think we've uh, settled who's the biggest badass on this call. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> So I will what? now go to our uh, excellent small talk. Were there like ropes and stuff? Like, did it look mountainy? <laughs> I imagine there's a carabiner as part of the process. I couldn't find the words, Paul, but I was, I was, I was, I was really asking if she was a free soloist because I, that's I saw that movie and that's about all I know about climbing. <laughs> so now I want to know if everyone that climbs is a free soloer. Uh, Joel. Please uh, bail me out here. Tell tell the audience, remind them who you are, and then uh, probably remind them about Neff Madness. Okay. Uh, I'm a 50-year-old a white male father of twins that are going to college next year, and that is an incredibly stressful event. I think it's it's something that if I get through the college selection process without chest pain, I think I'm cleared for a major surgery at this point. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm the co-creator of this uh, educational event called uh, Neff Madness. It is in its seventh year. And uh, this is an online uh, group uh, edutainment project. And what we do is we have uh, 32 nephrology concepts spread over eight nephrology regions or academic regions. And we put them into uh, a single elimination bracket, very similar to March Madness, the uh, Collegiate Basketball Championship. And then we have uh, everybody reads uh, summaries, learns about these topics, and then picks which ones win in these head-to-head matchups. And the teams advance, just like they would through March Madness, to a championship. So what what we're doing right now is we're going to help you learn about one of the regions, and this region is hyperkalemia, and then... uh, we're going to do it. We have another region that we'll be doing with the uh, curbsiders, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. And then we have a third region that we're doing with the curbsiders, uh, transplant. And so uh, we'll help you with those three, three regions. There'll be five other regions for you to figure out on your own. And, uh, and we'd like people to enter and vote. And when you enter, you have an opportunity to choose a team that you enter with. I know the curbsiders have been very enthusiastic. Your listeners uh, come out in droves for Neff Madness. Uh, and you guys, I think you guys, you guys won, what, two years ago for most participation or last year? Uh, I, we might have been both. It might have been both. I don't know. It might have been both, They sent me some, yeah. some swag both times. So I imagine we won something. But uh, we, we did. We did. Uh, we like to think that uh, the curbsiders were there in force for Neff Madness. We love yeah, it. Yeah, it's been really, it's been really fun. It's been a great partnership between the two, the two projects. Before we get to the case, I think what what we had so Elena Gibson, our our fearless writer producer for this episode, she uh, who could not be here tonight, but she did want us just to remind the audience a little bit of the background hyperkalemia. Um, so, like, how common is this in CKD? We're we're mainly talking about patients with chronic kidney disease here. How common is this, and and why specifically do do they get hyperkalemia in CKD, Joel? Well, Ryan, Ryan, you you wrote this up. What, what's what's the story on uh, on hyperkalemia and CKD? Uh, so, hyperkalemia is actually the most common electrolyte disturbance in up to twenty percent of patients with chronic kidney disease. It gets more common for those with declining EG, uh, GFR, um, and we see it most in patients 
with diabetes or heart failure, particularly among patients who need to be on or benefit from ACE inhibitors or uh, ARBs. And so is it just the ACE inhibitors and ARBs and heart failure and diabetes that cause the hyperkalemia, or is there something about those conditions specifically that make them prone to uh, hyperkalemia? No, particularly in diabetes, uh, uh, insulin resistance leads to hyperkalemia, as well as hyporenemic hypoaldosteronism or type 4 RTA is a risk factor in these patients. Uh, and uh, in heart failure, in part, the medications, uh, as well as the declining EGFR. Okay. So we have that there. Let's give them a case here. Paul, would you do the honors and, and bring us into a case so we can dig into this a little bit more? Sure. We have... The patient, Ms. Karen, and we gave her all the risk factors. She is a 57-year-old female. She's got a past medical history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, type 2 diabetes, and CKD3B, who is presenting for usual follow-up. On her most recent labs, her potassium is elevated at 5.6 millimoles per liter, and her labs for the past three months are actually notable for a potassium greater than 5. So we're staring at these, and I've done the internist thing where I've kept repeating the lab, hoping it would just normalize, and that did not work. For three months. Yes, <laughs> three months. The patient <laughs> survived me, and now I thought I should probably start working this up. So I guess now now that I've confirmed thricely that the patient is indeed hyperkalemic, what should my workup uh, look for for this patient who has, as we discussed, some known risk factors for hyperkalemia? Debbie, how, how, would you, how would you approach this patient? Well, I think the first thing that I would do would be to actually look at her medications to see what type of medications that she's on to see if any of those medications might actually cause her hyperkalemia. The next, although I think you. And so why don't we, why don't we just pause there? What, which ones are you looking for? What are the, what are the, what are the, the greatest hits, if you will? Definitely the RAS blockers, right? So I, if she has hypertension, she's probably on a RAS blocker and I would definitely look at that. But I would not stop the RAS blocker, but I would just note whether she indeed was on one or not. Um, because there's a lot of phenomenal evidence saying that you don't need to titrate it. Uh, we'll probably talk here in a few more minutes about maybe putting her on a binder to correct that hyperkalemia so we can continue to push on that RAS, RAS blocker. But I would just note the medications to see if there were any uh, known offenders with respect to her hyperkalemia. And, and what else, besides, besides uh, your ACE inhibitors, your angiotensin receptor blockers, your ALDO antagonists, what, what other uh, ones would you look for? Well, I'm not going to necessarily speak directly to the medications, but I would certainly start to probe to see whether she's on any uh, unique herbal medicines. Oftentimes, our patients don't necessarily Mm. always tell us that they're taking some of these herbal remedies, um, but oftentimes they do, and they are horrific offenders with respect to hyperkalemia. So I would start probing and finding out whether she's doing that. Um, There's also some individuals who eat clay. Clay is actually also can cause hyperkalemia. Um, there are some individuals who actually eat burnt match heads, um, and so which I can't imagine is too tasty, but evidently they love them, and that also could cause hyperkalemia. So I would sort of start maybe looking for some zebras in there, um, but but uh, I would definitely just begin to probe and ask her more questions about what she might be doing with respect to her medications and beginning to tip into the diet a bit. Yeah, the Let's other see. the other the other ones that I, I, I you don't want to miss is um, NSAIDs because there a lot of them are going to be um, uh, non prescription, right? They're just over the counter, and if they're taking Advil pretty regularly, that's a pretty reliable cause of hyperkalemia. And then um, uh, the potassium sparing diuretics, besides spironolactone, you got to remember amylorod and triamterene, and then of course the um, the antibiotic trimsulfa, trimethoprim also will raise the potassium. And so don't, don't let those slide by without, without at least uh, hitting those on the review of systems. 
about what about diet? Let's say she just loves her French fries, avocados, and for some reason bok choy. Exactly. Now, so see, if we're going to dive into the diet information here, so she might really love those things, but her French fries might be okay because she maybe soaked them first, and now all of a sudden the potassium is leached into the water prior to her actually deep frying them. So the French fries might actually be okay. But I would do a deep dive into what she's actually eating. The avocado could be problematic. But I would say, I think this is where we're really missing some of the information. This is Debbie's personal opinion. And that is, we need to not only look at the food, the food item that they're eating, but within the context of the meal. Like if she's eating an avocado, which is relatively low in carbohydrates, that's one thing. But if she has avocado toast, the toast brings in the carbohydrates and that allows her insulin to go up, which facilitates that first uh, pass of, with respect to potassium takes it into the cells. So I think it's not just the food item, but it, the context of the actual meal. Wait, makes Debbie, it- I just want to make sure I got this right. Avocado toast, not only good for millennials, but it is good for <laughs> potassium. That, I'm going there. I'm going for avocado toast. Love it. <laughs> as long as it's not wheat toast, because then we, we you, have a whole phosphorus. She knew our demographic skewed millennial, and she just, <laughs> you're... This is I consider this pandering to the audience, Debbie, but uh, I'll, we will allow it. That was a nice teaser of like the the dietary stuff, but I wanna I did want to just swing back for a second. You mentioned uh, first of all, I love the fact clay and burnt match heads. Like if I ever diagnose hyperkalemia because of one of those two causes, I'm just gonna like you've missed it, Matt. Feel like you've I, missed it like five times already. <laughs> <laughs> It, it sounds like a form of pica, but maybe it's just like a... <laughs> well, isn't pica like eating chips and clay and stuff like that? It, it's eating things yeah, that aren't food. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, food. so it yeah. is a form so, of pica. Okay, and then the supplements, though. I wanted to go back to that. Is there... Are these... What is in these supplements? Is it just that the supplements have like potassium chloride in there? Well, but... And what... Are there any common names to these things? Or like, what are they aiming for with these supplements that they... Where they're accidentally getting where they're accidentally getting this big potassium load? Well, I think that people are searching for, um, I'm going to step back in a second. I I believe that people think that our food sources right now are relatively deprived of nutrients. Um, We've over farmed our soil so that there's less potassium in our, our soil. And so people then are reaching out for these either supplements that provide nutrients in excess because they're thinking that they're repleting their body by taking these supplements, or they're looking for some of these ancient herbal solutions for weight reduction. And some of those, again, they may not even have the potassium listed on the label, um, but they are known causes of hyperkalemia. One might be noni juice that people might consume as a health drink. Any of the juices are probably absolutely loaded in potassium and probably underappreciated. The other source of potassium is right now, we have a lot of these vegetable meats, right? I think uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken has the non-chicken Kentucky Fried item. Um, and those, those non-meat products are absolutely chock full of potassium. And again, underappreciated by the average consumer. Um, and so, and also uh, a lot of the meat products and processing are loading up on potassium to enhance flavor and preservative values. So there's hidden sources of potassium in our food sources, but but specifically people are looking, they're not knowing that they're getting exposed to potassium in some of these foods that they're consuming. I'm going to irrevocably date the show here. I'm sorry, I'm just shook. There is vegetarian Kentucky Fried Chicken now? <laughs> there absolutely is. There's vegetarian Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's supposed to be really tasty. I have tasty. to go. <laughs> 
Paul, that's weird. Paul, I'll meet you there in an hour. Uh, we we have a hard out, everybody. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's. So let's let's say this patient, uh, Mrs. K. We have she's on lisinopril. We look at her med list. She's on lisinopril. She's got heart failure, reduced ejection fraction. She's got high blood pressure. We consider stopping it, but we're like, well, you know, we think this this medicine might be benefiting her and for her heart failure. And her blood pressure, we'd really like to keep, and her blood pressure had been difficult to control, so we'd really like to keep her on it. So, Ryan, what's what's the evidence about, like, like do we need to continue these? Can you talk a little bit about the Ame- Amethyst-DN trial? Yeah, so um, the one concern about stopping these medications is that they do have evidence-based indications, particularly in these patients. Uh, there was the Amethyst-DN trial uh, and after this trial is actually when Pteromer, uh became FDA approved. This was a stage two trial in which 306 patients with diabetic nephropathy and an EGFR 15 to 60 uh, on RAS inhibitor therapy and hyperkalemia were stratified by their baseline serum potassium uh, to different starting doses of Pteromer. Uh, they then looked at the change in uh, potassium from baseline at four weeks and at through 52 weeks. At four weeks, there was already a reduction in serum potassium, and it was sustained through the entire period. Uh, the adverse reaction uh, in, in this study was uh, mostly hypomagnesemia with 7% of patients uh, having low serum magnesium. So in practice... Uh... Have any of you all used, Ryan, we'll start with you, uh, using these medications? Is this something, like if you saw this patient, let's say you were seeing them because they also uh, also have the CKD, would you would you think about like starting them on Pteromer or one of these potassium binders in order to kind of treat their cardiovascular conditions that we talked about? I've tried several times to put patients on Pteromer. Uh, I've only been successful once, primarily due to cost. Uh, with our insurance, it's about $1,000. Uh, once you get a prior authorization, it brings it down to about 500 per month. Uh, that's not affordable for most patients. Yeah. And then, I mean, Joel, what's your thinking on this? Because like, how much of a... I guess the question is like how much of a benefit like what are we what are we gaining by keeping them on this medication like do, is it going to are there is it going to prevent them from progressing in their kidney disease um like how do you, how do you think about that so <clears throat> you know ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers are the, one of the best tools we have in our toolbook to slow toolbox to slow the progression of kidney disease and you know, they're not perfect, but they're the best that we got. And we'd like to keep patients on them as much as possible. Um, one thing that is repeatedly been shown in these studies and other studies is that uh, diuretics are a great way to uh, keep the potassium in check. And so that's usually the first thing I'll be reaching for is making sure all these patients are on a thiazide type diuretic, oftentimes a thiazide and a loop diuretic. And that not only will help your potassium, but it's, it's great to keep their blood pressure under control. Um, and in you know survey after survey, patients that are on diuretics have a much lower rate of hyperkalemia despite having advanced CKD. So I kind of consider that kind of a first step or a stage one type of move. Um, I have used binders in patients uh, that have uh, recurrent hyperkalemia 
I want to make sure it's a patient that is uh, responsible. You hate to give a patient a medication that they may stop in the future, forget to take it, and then um, fall into pretty significant hyperkalemia. So it's it's a patient that I feel I really trust and and know that they're going to be able to stay on their medication. And uh, that said, it, it works well. These drugs do what they say on the tin. They control the hyperkalemia. Right. And we, we had talked about SPS on, on the prior show we did on hyperkalemia, about the risk of that, this kind of the, the risk to the bowel, uh, be, bowel ischemia being much pr- probably overblown, uh, not as common as, as it would lead you to believe. Are there any risks like with the two newer agents, pteromer and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate? Well, and, let's, and, let's, and let's rewind a little bit yeah. with the sodium polystyrene. Is it... Everybody focuses or over, really indexes it on this um, on this bowel ischemia, but they are unpleasant medications to take. Mm-hmm. Right? They cause a they cause a lot of you know uh, nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and upset stomachs. And so it is. It's just your patient's going to hate you if you put them on it chronically. Mm-hmm. And the real claim to fame of both Batyrmir and Lokelma is how low their adverse reactions are and how easily tolerated the drugs are. And the generic. Okay, so- the sodium zirconium cyclosilicate. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I say SZC. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, and pteromer, uh, pardon me. Uh, and they're just, they're very well tolerated patients. It doesn't seem to bother them at all. They have a very low rate of uh, GI discomfort. Are you uh, having the per- same control trouble getting them actually covered though? I have not had as much trouble as oh. Ryan has had. Um, uh, but, you know, what Ryan was telling me before, one of the things that happened, she had a patient that was on it and she didn't realize how much they were spending, mm. right? Because some of those patients won't tell you like, oh, doctor ordered this. I guess I need to take this. And uh, and so I think it's important you know, from that lesson to go, hey, even though it's covered, how much are you paying? What's your out of pocket on this? And, and to keep, keep an eye on that because these, these costs can just explode on these patients. Brian, what anything that you'd like to highlight about these agents kind of comparing and contrasting them? Like if you were, let's try to put yourselves in the shoes of uh, one of our listeners. Most of them are generalists in thinking about using these medications other than some of the side effects that Joel talked about for SPS. Anything, what, what else would you want them to know? They should check a magnesium before starting Petiramir. It's not a contraindication, but they should at least make sure it's replaced before starting. Uh, the other thing is just like, uh, SPS, it shouldn't be used for emergent treatment of hyperkalemia, uh, except for maybe, uh, uh, sodium zirconium cyclosilate, which actually has an effect in lowering potassium in as little as two hours. Yeah, that's incredible. How come that one, how come that one acts so much quicker than the others? Uh, because SBS and pteromir actually act in the colon, it's going to take hours before it can start taking effect. Whereas, uh, the sodium, uh, zirconium cyclosilate <laughs> <laughs> takes effects in the intestine. Okay. Interesting. Does, uh, is, oh, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, this is Debbie. So you, you asked a little bit about cost and I, this is Debbie's opinion as well. The cost of actually having a hyperkalemic event can be life-threatening. And having hypertension is also life-threatening. If these drugs allow these individuals to not have to be hospitalized for hyperkalemia, reduce the mortality of hyperkalemia, and they also help with blood pressure, the costs associated with them for the patient's overall health 
are tremendous. And what I understand is a lot of these companies are now trying to work with individual patients or physicians to try to really reduce the cost. And, and I think you can petition to them um, as an ad need basis to see if you can, can't get it for less. I've also heard the SPS is no longer going to be made, number one. And number two, that, that they're trying to make sure that the cost of these drugs is all the way down to what the cost of SPS would have been. So, so I think that there, when we're looking at cost, we shouldn't only look at just the cost of the medication, but the cost in, the, in totality, the, the bigger picture. SPS is no longer going to be made? That, that is... <laughs> That's what I've heard. That gets there. Yeah. Like, running out. And it's, I understand too, that it's incredibly difficult to get. I don't know if any of you have had that, that problem, but um, I think that these new binders have come in and sort of pushed it out of the way and, and it'll be much more challenging to get. And these other, these new binders have so much better efficacy than SPS and, and tolerability as Joel said. So I think this is the, the dawn of the, of the binder. Oh, that's exciting. Cause am I, again, dating the show, uh, irrevocably, in my estimation, SPS is entirely too easy to get a hold of for, for most of the people who have the capacity to order it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so, but, uh, and, and something that uh, Matt asked earlier, uh, we talked about the magnesium with uh, pteromere, um, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, <laughs> as its name implies, does provide a sodium load with these patients. And one of the side effects in these studies was um, increased lower extremity edema, um, there's been pretty careful analysis looking at um, blood pressure. It didn't seem to be affect the blood pressure. And they did a dialysis study, and they didn't notice an increase in dry weight. So it's not clear how significant this sodium load is, but it is something to be uh, at least to uh, consider. Um, and actually, then, and that's, it's a really good point, too, because the sodium is just the amount of sodium that you actually get from that is like a half a teaspoon of salt. And it, it, it's actually relatively small, but it does cause the edema. You're right. But what I'm really impressed with is that despite the small amount of edema, there isn't a change in blood pressure. So there's yeah. something kind of interesting going on there. I don't think we necessarily know exactly what that is. But when you can dissociate uh, edema from blood pressure raising, if there's something really Potentially, maybe it's not as harmful as we might think, but definitely you have to watch for that sodium load. For for these two two agents, Ryan, uh, in the write up that you did, the under future directions, there were two trials that you mentioned. One was the Diamond trial, which is ongoing. It's and and the other was the Amber trial. And I wanted to just highlight specifically the Amber trial. That was the one where they looked at patients with resistant hypertension and who were taking spironolactone. And they were trying to give them these newer these newer generation binders to try to see if they could keep them on spironolactone. Can you talk a little bit about the outcomes of that trial? I was I was a little bit disappointed to see that it wasn't an overly positive trial. Yeah, I think there's some reasons for that though, and I I'm not that disappointed with the results. Um, so in Amber. Uh, patients with chronic kidney disease and resistant hypertension were all given 25 milligrams of spironolactone uh, in this run-in period, and then it was subsequently increased if able. And then patients were randomized to either receiving pteromer or to receiving placebo. Uh, and in those receiving uh, pteromer, they were able to stay on uh, the spironolactone for longer uh, compared to the placebo group. Uh, however, the study was only 12 weeks long. Um, and, uh, the, the major outcome that they were looking for was whether there would be an improvement in blood pressure 
And there was by about uh, 10 millimeters of mercury in each group, but there wasn't a statistically significant difference between the two groups. And that was the major part that was disappointing. But there was a statistically significant difference in the ability to continue spironolactone. Like the drug worked to allow patients to stay on the aldosterone antagonist, but the that ended up happening relatively late in the study, you know, week six, week nine, when people were finally falling off the spironolactone. And one of the interesting things about AMBER is they did, um, it was, they checked drug levels, metabolite levels of spironolactone, and the stuff hangs around for a long time. They were still picking up uh, significant amounts of, of active metabolites of spironolactone three weeks after patients stopped the drug. And so- wow. You have this hangover effect, and that may have prevented them from getting a nice separation of blood pressure. Huh. Okay. And if so, you're seeing Paul, you wouldn't have rechecked it until week 12 anyways. Right. Absolutely not. <laughs> and the, the, diamond, the, the diamond study, it looks like that one's kind of looking at uh, continuing the renin-angiotensin block, uh, blocking meds, like ACEs and ARBs, uh, for patients with heart failure. Um, and that, that one's looking at this similar, similar question, like, were they able to continue it longer? Was there a difference in outcomes? Is that the correct understanding, Ryan? Is there, or is there something else they're looking at? Yeah, they're looking the outcome of, of death and cardiovascular events, and that's expected to be completed in a couple of years, 2000. Yeah, that's a long, that's a long trial. They're right. looking for multiple years there. Yeah. Because I, I feel like that would really push me to be a more aggressive about trying this you know, like if, if a patient, cause right now, if a patient has hyperkalemia, um, and it, and it's, you know, you can't, you can't control it, uh, in that group, I'm, I'm taking off the ACE or the ARB, but if this, this trial would kind of give us evidence whether or not it would be worth adding an extra med to keep them on it to, to prevent like these big, big cardiovascular endpoints that actually are meaningful. Okay. Well, I think we should start talking a little bit about the dietary stuff and Stuart, did you want to pick up the next part of the case? I can give you a second to locate yeah. it. I'm right there. Okay. Perfect. So, all right. So Miss Karen is hesitant to add another medication and wonders if she can change her diet to avoid the medication. So despite our diatribe earlier, a dietary review only identifies daily intake of one banana and coconut water, apparently nothing else. So would you encourage starting a potassium binder now or are dietary changes enough in this patient? Deb, what do you think? I would get rid of the coconut water out with the coconut water, the <laughs> banana I'm going to keep in. Um, I don't want it to be a jumbo jumbo Chiquita banana, but you know, if it's a relatively small size banana, I'm going to leave that in um, because again, that banana is going to have potassium, but it also has carbohydrates. So it's going to stimulate that insulin. And I'm all for the fact that it has, there's some incredible health benefits associated with eating diets that are high in potassium for someone who does not have uh, dysfunctional kidneys. But, but I really, I'm really interested in trying to understand whether people who are starting to have declines in kidney function, if they wouldn't actually benefit from having some potassium in their diet. So I'm going to leave that banana there, but the coconut water, uh, I just don't see enough benefit for her to continue to that coconut water. That is a huge potassium load. It's water. It doesn't have any carb or it doesn't have much, much fiber. Um, and so away it goes because I really want to have mm. her eat fr fresh fruits and vegetables and not drink her, her potassium. So, so what if she comes back and sees you and let's say that now she's changed her diet completely. She listened to your, to your advice, but now she's gaining weight because all she's eating is processed foods. 
Okay, I would say get rid of the processed foods. So that's the, that's the really tricky thing that we've done to our poor CKD patients. We give them a diet that is absolutely horrible. It is not cardiac or heart healthy. We tell them to eat meat. We tell them to not have fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, it is, it's really quite disastrous. And so I think the new data with respect to the DASH diet, the DASH trial, which is the reducing sodium and increasing potassium in your diet, mm-hmm. eating much more fresh fruits and vegetables, the data on reducing blood pressure, reducing stroke incidence, reducing kidney stones, um, improving overall cardiometabolic health is so overwhelming that I'm now going to ask her to reduce the amount of processed foods that she's eating and go back and eat a much more fresh fruit and vegetable type diet. Yeah. Just no coconut water. Right. One, exactly. one, one of the things that's we, that, you know, you talk to nephrologists, they'll tell you all the time that one of the things that triggers hyperkalemic episodes regularly is uh, episodes of constipation, that as your renal function deteriorates, you really depend more and more on the colon to get that potassium clearance. And when you put patients on this low potassium diet, you get rid of the fruits and vegetables, their fiber intake plunges, and then you and you then get this increased constipation. You may not have gained anything in terms of potassium control. And so uh, this is a it's not just as simple as read the read the labels, look at the potassium intake and try to cut it down. You, you need to have a more global view of the diet and really kind of talk about what's a healthy diet. And if that means you're going to eat in, uh, increased potassium, sometimes you got to say, so be it, because, uh, uh, you know, a, a healthy diet is super important. One of the one of the interesting aspects that we're seeing more and more data come out is looking at uh, uh, alkali load in the diet, that uh, patients with, uh, with chronic kidney disease that increase the alkali intake, which is really going to be a lot of, a lot more fruits and vegetables primarily is the way they get that done. Um, we have empiric data that it slows the progression of kidney disease. So you're neutralizing saying that acidosis. So, so you're saying to drink al- alkaline water? Oh, I'm not trying to, I'm not telling you that. <laughs> That's terrible advice. Whose side are you on? I'm on your side. Joel. I want to, I want to, on your side. Oh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. Stuart, Stuart, are you selling alkaline water on the side? I am not. That's how he's putting his kids through college. Uh, <laughs> That's right. It's the only way. Debbie, what would it sound like when you talk to a patient with chronic kidney disease and you're talking to them about diet? Can you just, if we were to hear you counseling a patient, uh, this would be really helpful to to me personally, but also to the audience. I guess we care about them too. So can you tell us, please? No, so, so I, I used to be a renal dietitian um, many, many years ago, and I would have initially counseled this patient to eat meat, reduce the amount of fruits and vegetables, watch out for their phosphorus, uh, no milk products. Uh, I, I would have been draconian. I would have been really, really adamant about watching and, and making their, their life virtually miserable. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to follow a renal diet, but it is absolutely horrific. It tastes terrible. There's no sodium. There's no spice. Um, it's, it's horrible. And you have to make a special diet just for that individual. They don't get to eat with the family. There's a lot of socio Uh, societal implications associated with it. So I've now, after I've read a lot, I'm going back now and I'm going, what is the evidence for us to cause these individuals to eat these horrific diets? And actually, there's not a lot of evidence. If you go back to the original papers that were the studies that were done in the 1950s, 
they gave people with CKD potassium tablets and looked at changes in serum potassium levels. That's not a food source. And I think that we now need to have newer trials with the foods that we're currently eating and see that there's even evidence with the people who have CKD3 or even on dialysis, when you give them uh, diets that have some potassium in it, you don't see huge changes in their overall serum potassium. They're actually able to handle it much better than we think, especially as, as Joel talked about, when we tap into the fiber and we get into the colon and have the colon helping with potassium homeostasis, it's a phenomenal way when the kidneys start to reduce, let's rely on the other organs that are responsible for overall potassium homeostasis. So now I would tell the patient, go back, eat a fresh fruit and vegetable diet, reduce the amount of the processed meats that you're eating. And I think you're going to find they'll be healthier. They'll be able to eat with the rest of their family. And I think their overall sense of well-being will increase. But do you still counsel to avoid certain fruits and vegetables? You know, I think that I would do that almost on a case-by-case basis. Um, I, I, I probably would ask them to watch out for meat, actually, which has a large amount of potassium in it because it doesn't come with the carbohydrate. You're, gonna, you're not going to be able to have the insulin facilitating that first uptake of, of potassium into the cells. So I would wa- ask them to avoid items that are, have are processed that might have the potassium. I'd ask them to avoid uh, salt substitutes for sure. Um, but I might, I might allow that banana. I wouldn't allow that coconut water, but I might uh, start maybe individualizing and seeing how the individual does in between uh, dialysis treatments or see how well they're tolerating some of the food sources. Yeah. I'm pretty much confused now. I don't know what to do. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) No, we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to sort it out here. So it sounds like and this is probably the probably the renal diet we have at Cashlack is probably right. still the awful diet that you described that you would have recommended like many years ago, and it, it sounds like now the the more as with more experience and maybe we need tr- we we definitely would need trials to do this eating just more of the classic things like don't eat a lot of processed foods eat more fruits and vegetables the general health advice for like almost everyone on the planet is would is also good for these patients is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. I think we've got to give it that trial because there is, what's amazing is that we oftentimes forget that um, our Paleolithic ancestors, they ate diets that were 15,000 milligrams of potassium a day. They ate fresh fruits and vegetables and meats. So our kidney has this incredible capacity to, to buffer against huge amounts of potassium, yet we are asking our patients um, to eat less than 2,000 milligrams a day. And, and yet then they're losing all of the health benefits associated with a, a high potassium diet. Paul, I think we need to start like a movement on Twitter to get everyone to just ban these specific, other than oh, the carb oh. control diet, which I'm sure, you know, that one makes sense still. I, I don't, I won't fight you on that, but the, all the other diets in the hospital are just, I it's think. so grim. It's just like a boiled And everyone hates breast. them. <laughs> and and boiled rice in the same water that the chicken breast was boiled in. Like it is just like this beige plate. It just, it's <laughs> so upsetting. We're just, we're all monsters. One of the interesting studies was uh, one of these studies that randomized patients to fruit and vegetables versus uh, sodium bicarbonate tablets. This is, we're trying to figure out, we know that acidosis is bad in CKD. Here are two strategies to control it. Fruits and vegetables on one side, sodium bicarbonate pa- tablets on the other side. And so one of them significantly has a significantly increased potassium load, right? The fruits and vegetables are in a lot more potassium. These are patients with stage four CKD 
and they found no difference in the serum potassium in, between those two groups. And they both, and they were equally effective at controlling uh, the acidosis. And so I think, you know, again, the point of the study wasn't looking at potassium as an endpoint, but it is empiric data that shows this idea that Debbie's talking about, it has, it has empiric data behind it. You can make these changes in patients with advanced CKD, increase their fruits and vegetables with no consequences from the potassium. Absolutely. That, tri- that trial was absolutely incredible. And even, even when they compared it, they had like equal efficacy between the bicarbonate tablets and the fruits and vegetables. But even the fruits and vegetables had a little bit above and beyond because they'd also lowered blood pressure where the, 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 uh, you had a sodium low that came in with the bicarbonate. So it, it is, it's another study that shows that we actually can start putting back a little potassium into these individuals' diets. They might do well, but they also might get the incredible benefits of the, uh, the alkali, uh, the, the acid-base balance benefits, as well as whatever the vitamins and minerals that are that are in these fruits and vegetables. Ryan, I wanted to ask you about Cashlack Midwest, we'll call it. And uh, is there, as a fellow, were you taught to give patients um, like a handout and say, these are high potassium foods and avoid these foods? And after doing like this write-up, do you still think that's something that you'll do if, if you were? Yeah. So we actually, in our clinic, have a handout where it's two pages. The first page is potassium acceptable foods. Uh, with a bunch of pictures to put on their refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And the, the second page is potassium unacceptable foods. Um, I, I still think it's probably a case-by-case basis. I, would, I agree that these diets are very limiting to our patients. Uh, the one problem with some of these trials that makes me nervous about doing this is that they actually excluded patients that were at highest risk for hyperkalemia, such as those who had diabetes or had a potassium greater at 4.6 to begin with. So I'm not quite ready to completely eliminate a low potassium diet in, in some patients, but I, I hope that in the future there's more evidence that that we can uh, liberalize these, these patients' diets. And it seems like it might make sense to, uh, like t- talking about individualizing it, if a, if a patient has, I don't know, uh, it, whatever the patient's potassium is to start, let them kind of try to eat fruits and vegetables, recheck the potassium. If you start to run into problems, then maybe you look at what they're eating and then you target specific foods. That's probably how I would approach it. Uh, Debbie, is are you doing something like that? Is Absolutely. What a great way to go because now it's individualized, right? I think that some patients all of a sudden can handle when they get CKD4, they can handle potassium of 5.7 without any EKG changes. They are perfectly normal. Everything is, they're happy. So there's, there's even some compensatory effect as the kidney function declines, maybe the colon picks up, but they're able to handle like almost a little bit higher potassium. So let's see what we're able to do with respect to the diet and see whether if we give them a half of a banana or whatever, do you really push it up to seven or are they perfectly, are they trucking along right there? At a, at a five. Um, and, I, and I think it's going to be individual. And that was one of the things I wanted to bring up in, in the beginning when we were talking, race has a huge factor in here. So, so it could be that we also have to look at, okay, what, what is the race of the individual? Um, blacks have a more difficult time, especially they tend to eat a little bit higher sodium diet, a little bit lower potassium. That ratio can be a little bit more problematic. Um, there also is genetic markers for hypertension. So that might be another thing that we factor in, but I think a case-by-case basis is going to be really, really important. Individualization. Okay. 
Debbie, Ryan was mentioning that there's a salt substitute, and, and I was wondering if you could mention about that a little bit. Um, what's in that? Absolutely. This is something that we really want to caution all of the, the CKD patients, dialysis patients to avoid. Oftentimes we ask them to reduce their amount of sodium and because that makes the foods taste bland and they reach for a salt substitute. There's several different types. There's a Morton's no salt. There's new salt. There's no salt. There's, they come in different brands, but basically it's hundred percent potassium chloride. So talk about increasing your potassium, causing hyperkalemia. Those products are our number one offenders. So we always want to make sure if you ever see someone come into your clinic that has hyperkalemia, that would be definitely one of the items that I would ask. Are you using a salt substitute? And if they are, get that off of the table. Does that differ from Mrs. Dash or would you lump that in there with those as well? Oh, thank you for that. So Mrs. Dash is all herbs. And so that's a wonderful product. Does not contain the potassium chloride, but these salt hmm. substitutes um, those are the ones you'd want to read your label. And if it had potassium chloride, it would, those would be the ones you'd want to avoid. Did you hear that, Paul? Debbie's recommending herb for your patient. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> herb. Fantastic. A plus episode. <laughs> All right, Paul, let's, let's bring it home with the, the last part of the case. Sure. So we're going to, well, I thought we have a different patient. We have a Mr. M now, I believe, who's a 46 year old male with a past history of CAD, hypertension, end stage renal disease on hemodialysis. He's coming to our office for routine follow-up. Mr. M is trying to lose weight and recently started attending a spin class with his neighbor. His most recent potassium was 5.4. I have a, a Will Ferrell old school flash and dredged up something for medical school where I remember that exercise might affect potassium in some way, but I have all you smart people here instead. So Ryan, remind me, how, how does exercise affect potassium levels and how should I cancel uh, poor Mr. M? Yeah. So most of the body's potassium is actually in the intercellular space and 80% of that is in muscle. Uh, and when somebody is exercising, uh, there's an action potential that causes potassium to go out of cells in order to, to get that action potential. And this can actually cause profound hyperkalemia during exercise. Uh, during uh, studies in the 80s and 90s, they looked at uh, uh, individuals doing intense exercise like bicycling or sprinting on a treadmill, and potassium could go as high as 8 uh, during oh. those episodes. Uh, however, afterwards, it would then go down to actually pr about one mil equivalent per liter below the, the pre-exercise potassium. It's crazy to think that people aren't just like dropping dead from that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but exercise affects uh, potassium in other ways as well. Uh, and those who exercise, um, they increase the number of the transport of the sodium potassium ATPase on, on muscle cells. And so uh, they may actually get possibly less hyperkalemia over, over time because there's more of those transporters. Um, and as uh, Debbie was pointing out earlier, uh, the increased muscle mass increases insulin sensitivity, and that may also be protective for hyperkalemia. You mentioned that having the, the muscle mass helps maybe help protective in some way, but does the degree of muscle mass, is the hyperkalemia also proportionate to that as well? That's what I would think. Uh, so with more vigorous exercise, uh, you've, there's more profound hyperkalemia. Uh, the muscle mass itself, I don't think, I'm not sure that that's actually been tested, but that would make sense. Debbie, you have any insight here? Yeah, no, I think that, it, I think that the more muscle you have, the the more insulin sensitive you are, but the muscle is also a reserve for the potassium. So that I think that the, the idea would be the type of activity that you would engage in 
might have a profound impact on what type on whether you had the hyperkalemia or not. For example, if you were doing a lower intensity but a muscle building activity, that might not cause as much of a great greater spike in the in the potassium versus someone who's doing uh, like this person's doing spinning. That would be an aerobic challenge. But maybe if you're doing high intensity interval training, which has been shown to actually increase muscle mass. That would again increase insulin sensitivity, and you might not get the same increase in love or the same amount of increase in potassium that you would get from some of the other activities. And the reason that they wanted to look at this, Debbie, right, was because there people are interested about recommending exercise to patients with CKD or patients on dialysis. What's the classic teaching been there? There hasn't been a lot, not to my knowledge, that the whole idea or whole concept of exercise in a, in a person on dialysis has been really low. And there's just some new articles, a couple of review articles that have just come out looking specifically at the benefits of exercise for people um, on, on dialysis. And again, the idea is enhancing the overall amount of muscle mass and improving insulin sensitivity as two ways to mitigate that hyperkalemia. Yeah. Yeah, because when I think dialysis, I mean, working mainly in a hospital right now, the patients I see are so sick, like I, I can, it's hard to imagine exercise, but I guess in, in your practices, probably all of you are seeing the other side, people that are still living relatively normal lives working. And, and there, so there is a cohort of di- patients on dialysis that are able to, to exercise if it was prescribed. I think so. In fact, some of these studies have brought in uh, like little bicycle wheels for people to actually ride while on dialysis. They do oh, wow. intradialytic oh, like exercise, that. right? You got four hours there, spin a little bit, and uh, and you know, and some of those studies have shown uh, increased muscle mass. Uh, some of them have shown uh, decreased uh, resting serum potassium from those interventions, hmm. uh, but the the data is variable. I believe Neff Madness last year actually highlighted a runner who was on peritoneal dialysis. So for this part, what what would be the recommendation right now, uh, Ryan? How are you how are you counseling your patients? Is anything going to change after having done this this review? No, I still recommend exercise uh, in my patients, just like any other patient, that they should be exercising about five days a week for thirty minutes if they're able to. I would agree with that. And again, I think it's the type of activity. I wouldn't want them to do just this incredible vigorous a form of activity. I would love them to do much more of the, of the, the muscle building um, and, and probably do it with a personal trainer or have someone there with them initially giving them their exercise prescription. Because I think if they went to in some other exercise class, they may be thrown in with everybody else. But I think, again, this is an individualized basis, which we need to begin to talk with them. But I think increasing that muscle mass is really going to help in the long run. Okay. Joel, any final words on this topic? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, uh, this is kind of a new day for potassium. Like a lot of the, uh, old dogma is starting to fall, fall by the wayside. The idea that, uh, dietary restriction is a first step process is, is really a recommendation without evidence. And we're actually seeing the evidence go the other way. And that, uh, and that's, and I think that's really powerful because, uh, you know, Getting people on, you know, uh, what is food is the first medicine. Getting people on good diets can make a huge difference. And we've been prescribing diets that have just been toxic to patients, and giving patients a uh, more fruits and more fruit, more fruits and vegetables in CKD stage three, four, and maybe even on dialysis can be really revolutionary. So that's very exciting to me. 
And then the idea that we now have uh, drugs that are tolerable uh, that can be used for a prolonged period. And we're starting to see, we're starting to build an evidence base that using these new binders, uh, pteromere and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate uh, is allowing us to maintain the, maintain other life-saving drugs, whether it's aldosterone antagonists or RAS inhibitors. And again, that database is building. It's not quite there yet, but we're, uh, we're adding to that. And, uh, you know, uh, th this is exciting stuff. And I think this is going to make a difference uh, for our patients. And then, and lastly, uh, the idea of exercise to be able to, you know, patients are all the time are asking me, what can I do to help myself? And, uh, and maybe the answer is, well, we want you on a balanced diet, a fruit and vegetable diet, but the other thing you can do is build up some muscle mass. That's going to make a difference. Try to minimize your insulin resistance, which is probably driving a lot more of the hyperkalemia than potassium intake. Ryan, any, any take-home points that you wanted to add to that? Uh, I think Joel covered uh, many of them. Okay. Yeah, it was a pretty excellent summary, Joel. It's like you've done this before. <laughs> Debbie, anything anything to add? Well, I, I wouldn't be a, an associate dean for research if I didn't emphasize the need for more research, right? I think what we're talking about, Joel did a beautiful summary, but but we need more data um, so that we can actually put the the meat <laughs> pun intended. Um, we need to put we need to actually be able to demonstrate this because there's still a lot of uh, dogma out there and people, this is a big paradigm shift. And so we, we need the data so we can have the proof to really support what we're recommending at this point. All right. So uh, everyone remember to fill out your Neff Madness brackets if you haven't done so already. Bracket submission opens on March 13th. Bracket submission closes April 3rd. Okay. Hey, Joel, I got a question for you. Yeah, go. Why do nephrologists make really good adolescent sports doctors? Because they're very good at kids' knees. Well, yes. I was going to say kid knees. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's Child just... play. Child yeah, play is doing it. Come I on tried. now. I tried. <laughs> Claire, please keep that in. <laughs> all right. I want to let you all go. Thank you so much. Uh, Debbie, thank you for joining us late at night after taking a red eye. Please get some sleep and take the day off tomorrow. You have you our full yeah we're our full support for that. Whatever that's not, don't break a leg. <laughs> yeah, and Ryan, thank you for writing this up. Uh, it was very helpful. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicious. <laughs> I am. Flabbergasted and flummoxed. <laughs> to get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback, Paul. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Elena Gibson, to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris, the Chew Man Chew, who's still on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And thank you, Stuart, for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.